Welcome to Right Rising, a podcast from the Center for the Analysis of the Radical Right. I'm your host, Augusta DeLomo. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Avian Leidig, a postdoctoral affiliate at the Center for Research on Extremism at the University of Oslo, and she's the head of publishing at the Center for the Analysis of the Radical Right. She's here to talk to us today about what exactly is the radical right. Evian, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to start off with what do scholars mean when they describe an organization as part of the radical right? We see this term floating around a lot in media, in research, in policy. So what does this mean? And what is an example of a radical right organization? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a foundational question, isn't it? So when scholars refer to the radical right, they often mean an organization or actor that falls further to the right of the center-right on the traditional left-right political spectrum. An example of a radical right organization could be a political party like uh, the National Rally, which was previously the Front National in France, the Alternative for Deutschland, or AFD for short, in Germany, or the Sweden Democrats. Now, the There are some characteristics of the radical right, and the sociologist Jens Riedgren kind of sums it up nicely, although it is quite jargony. And he describes the radical right as being that of ethno-nationalist xenophobia and anti-establishment populism. So the first part, ethno-nationalist xenophobia, that basically means that, you know, one belongs to the nation by virtue of their ethnicity. And the xenophobia component would be the anti-immigrant stance that the radical right takes. And then when it comes to anti-establishment populism, this essentially views the political and media establishment as being quite left-leaning. So it's sort of uh, anti-incumbent establishment in that sense. And I also wanted to touch upon this word populism because I think it comes up all the time when we talk about the radical right. So populism can be either what uh, the political scientist Kasmuda describes as a thin ideology of the people versus the corrupt elite. And there's both a left and a right-wing populism. Now, when it comes to the left, the corrupt elite might be seen as corporations or uh, party politics, which furthers capitalism. But on the right, the corrupt elite are basically those who see the furthering of initiatives like diversity and multiculturalism in Western societies. So that's one way of understanding populism, the people versus the corrupt elite. But there's some scholars who actually see populism more as a style, like bad manners. And Donald Trump is definitely a figure who embraces that definition. Awesome. Thanks for clarifying that, Evian, especially because as scholars, we take some of these distinctions for granted. But I think it's important to set out clear definitions so we can put groups in the right categories. So how does the radical right then differ, now that you've given us this context, from the extreme right or the far right? Yeah, that's a very important distinction. So far right is basically an umbrella term for both the radical right and the extreme right. So oftentimes, the radical right is seen as pro-democracy and anti-violence in achieving its means. And this is often being used to describe political parties and sometimes social movements. So think again, National Rally, as I had mentioned earlier, and the uh, AFD in Germany. 
but also the Justice and Development Party in Turkey could be considered radical right or Lega in Italy. And then on the other hand, you have the extreme right, which is that of anti-democracy and pro-violence to achieve their ends. And this is often used for groups like Adam Waffen Division or the prescribed, uh, now prescribed group National Action, uh, as well as uh, the Oyoku Dantai in Japan, which is a group of ultranationalist groups that, op- that operate based on anti-Korean minority activism. And there's three main characteristics for understanding far-right ideology in general, and that's nativism, extreme nationalism, and authoritarianism. But I just want to make a point that all of these terms, uh, radical versus extreme right, as well as the characteristics of far-right ideology, they're all dominated in the literature by political science. And for instance, terms like nativism and authoritarianism to describe the far-right are contested by sociologists and cultural studies scholars. So for example, when we think about nativism, who is a native? For instance, white European settlers in the U.S. certainly aren't native to that territory. And when we think about authoritarianism, this is often used to describe very specific historical regimes, but what about colonialism and slavery as authoritarian projects? And finally, I just want to raise a point that even conversations about racism is left out of these analyses, but it's really a crucial element to understanding the foundation for the far right in Western countries. That's extremely helpful. And I think that transitions well into the next point that we wanted to discuss of how fixed are these distinctions? Can organizations like the ones that you mentioned traverse multiple categories? And if they're in these multiple categories, are they cooperating together? Do they form connections specifically? Do far-right organizations only work with far-right organizations? Or are they capable of partnering with groups that are maybe outside the distinctions that scholars would put on them? Yeah, that's a really important point. I would say that these distinctions, these categories, are definitely geared towards Western Europe and to some extent the U.S. I mean, parties that are extreme right could be Golden Dawn in Greece or Jobbik in Hungary or the BJP in India, which is what I've studied to a great extent. And these political parties use or they work with actors who do engage in violence. And so it sort of blends the radical slash extreme distinction. And another problem with distinctions like this is how do we label media and and intellectual organizations, for example, publishing houses like Counter Currents, which is based in the US, or Arctos Media, which is uh, based in Europe, Um, or even intellectual movements like the Nouvelle Droit or the New Right in Europe. I mean, how do we label them within these distinctions? As well as, I think, uh, more importantly today, subcultures, online communities like the Chansphere, for instance, or even subcultures like fashion and music and sports. These don't fit neatly within these categories. Um, And I've been thinking lately about figures like Bolsonaro in Brazil or Duterte in the Philippines, who don't come from a traditional far-right party or movement. So how do we sort of situate them uh, within these distinctions? And lastly, I just wanted to point that, you know, compounding this issue with fixed distinctions is really the mainstreaming of far-right ideas and narratives. So as I mentioned, Kasmude earlier, he calls this the fourth wave, uh, which is where far-right parties are no longer considered to be outsider or challenger parties because they've essentially entered the mainstream. 
And I would just want to take it a step further um, than just far-right parties. So just as an example, last summer, um, the Hungarian far-right Prime Minister Viktor Orban met with the Burmese pro-democracy politician Aung San Suu Kyi, and they had both described concerns with, quote, continuously growing Muslim populations, uh, quote, in Europe and in Southeast Asia. And I mean, Orban has described Muslim migrants during the refugee crisis as, quote, Muslim invaders, while Aung San Suu Kyi has stood silent on the Rohingya genocide in Myanmar. And Aung San Suu Kyi is not a far-right politician, but she represents the popularity of Buddhist nationalism, which is a far-right movement in Myanmar, and the continued persecution of the ethnic Rohingya. So I think it's important to think about not even far-right politicians or actors have to necessarily promote far-right ideas and narratives. I mean, this has become, unfortunately, part of our mainstream political discourse. No, I think that point is absolutely critical. And the intrusion of far-right ideas into mainstream parties is something that scholars and media have really focused on in the past four or five years. So I guess that leads to the next question then. If there's all of this movement of radical right ideas into the mainstream, why is it important to create distinct categories for radical right, far right, extreme right organizations? Well, I certainly think that it can help us, particularly as scholars, map the landscape of these organizations and it can provide a basis for comparison cross-nationally or transnationally. But I personally think that this is becoming more futile these days, precisely because of what you mentioned, Augusta, with the mainstreaming of these ideas and narratives. I think this also leads to a really important question about the role of fascist ideology in all of these movements. There's been a lot, as a scholar that's based in the United States, there's been a lot of discussion about, is Donald Trump a proto-fascist? How does fascism impact his political party? How does fascism impact the policy directions of the presidency? So the next question that I have for you, Avian, is how are radical, extreme, or far-right groups different from what we would say are fascist organizations, or is there not really a difference at all? Yeah, I mean, I think this is where we start to get into the nitty-gritty of terminology. Because if you ask a historian, they'll likely say that fascism is derived from a very specific time period, namely the interwar period that gave rise to Italian fascism and German Nazism. So groups today who have their origins to these big movements would be considered fascist. But then there's other historians who focus less on fascism as historical regimes per se, but it's born out of specific historical conditions, the ones that we saw in the 1920s and 1930s in Europe, which helped create the mood for discontent and radicalism uh, against the status quo. But then there are finally other historians who say that fascism is somewhat a historical without a capital F. And it's a much more generic phenomenon that isn't tied to a specific time and place. For example, I look at the RSS, which stands for National Volunteer Organization in India, and it has roots to fascism, but it may not necessarily fit into the first two categories. 
So the founders of the RSS actually traveled to meet Mussolini in Italy and were inspired by the paramilitary drills of the black shirts. And that later became the modus operandi for the RSS. And suddenly, with the rise of Nazi Germany, they developed collaborations both officially and unofficially through things like letter correspondences and newspaper editorials and even covert intelligence operations. But again, would a scholar of fascism necessarily consider the RSS to be a fascist organization? But I think despite uh, all three of these variants, I mean, fascism is often understood as a revolutionary movement, which aims for a sort of quote unquote rebirth to create a utopian society. And this is often achieved by mass mobilization and a charismatic leadership, often through violent means. Uh, And just a last point on this is that sort of following the Second World War, scholars in Europe started to use the term extreme right instead of fascism. But you'll still find all three conceptions of fascism in the scholarship today. Thank you for that, Evian. And I actually wanted to go back to a point that you brought up earlier about the role of race in radical right organizations. Specifically, coming from the United States, we hear a lot about white nationalism and the importance of white national identity to extreme groups on the right in the United States. So how does how do questions of nationalism and questions of race intersect with radical extreme and far right groups, particularly, as you pointed out, a lot of these terms have a very Western European context and your research really pulls on questions of the far right in India. So I was hoping you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, definitely terms like white nationalism or white supremacism is more often used in the U.S., And that is by and large informed by the integral role or really the original sin of slavery in the U.S. and the sort of co-evolution of racial supremacy to justify oppression. And Europe, of course, did participate in slavery and genocide through colonial projects, but that was always seen as something done abroad rather than at home, where it was most visible in the U.S., Um, And you touched on something in particular, which is the nationalism component of white nationalism. So I just wanted to sort of break through some of that terminology. So when it comes to nationalism, this does have a very important intersection with the far right. So when I mentioned nativism earlier, I mean, we can understand this as, you know, biological racism or, or ethnic nationalism. And biological racism is the idea that certain races are biologically more superior than others. And it essentially argues that race correlates with intelligence. So this rise of um, scientific racism, if you will. And this is definitely more common in neo-Nazi Aryan circles and the Ku Klux Klan in the U.S. On the other hand, we have ideas of ethnic nationalism, which I sort of touched upon a bit earlier, which is the idea that Nations should be constituted by ethnicity. And this is much more common um, amongst the far right today. So, for example, amongst the so-called alt-right or in the U.S. or the identitarian movement in Europe. But this has definitely been viewed by scholars as much more a strategic decision of framing so that certain aspects of the far right can seem to be more legitimate or to be more appealing in public discourse. And then just lastly, you know, there's this related concept of cultural nationalism. So, for example, the counter-jihad movement, which sees Islam as having 
different cultural values than the West. But again, this has been viewed as sort of a strategic move to circumvent criticism. And definitely the boundary between ethnic and cultural nationalism isn't always so clear cut. And there's certainly a good argument to be made that even ideas of biological racism have been reinvented through ethnic and cultural nationalism. Thank you for that, Avian. And I think the last point that you touched on as thinking about these particular movements as making strategic calculations is incredibly important. I think in mainstream media, popular culture, we tend to view far-right organizations as convoluted, disconnected, lacking any sort of particular agenda. And I think you draw a really important point that these groups are adjusting to geopolitical realities and the particular dynamics of the local countries that they're operating in, or groups that have more transnational ambitions as well, situating themselves and situating their arguments in a particular context. So I'm really glad that you drew that point out. Now, from your own research, I wanted to ask if these terms and categorizations vary geographically. For instance, and you've touched on this a little bit, but I wanted you to expand a bit more based on your research on the far right in India. Do these categories hold up as well? Um, You know, they seem particularly suited, again, as you mentioned, to a Western and a specifically European and U.S. context. So I just wanted to ask, do these categories hold up um, from your research? Yeah, that's a really important question. And I think that there is a major issue uh, when it comes to recognizing what is the far right, even among scholars of the far right. So in other contexts like Latin America, it's frequently called right-wing authoritarianism. Uh, In other regions, it's called ethnic conflict. And definitely in India, it's often referred to as majoritarian nationalism or Hindu supremacism. Um, And of course, there are local dynamics that are important to understanding these phenomena. But what I've been trying to do in my research is push for a universal framework for understanding the far right as a global phenomenon. And I think too often scholars are siloed into area or regional studies to explain the cultural relativism of a far right presence. And there isn't enough collaboration across geographies and disciplines. But I do want to make a really important point here, which is that moving beyond Eurocentrism in the study of the far right does not mean just looking at case studies in the global south and applying categories designed for European slash North American far right to these case studies, right? So we don't necessarily want to replicate uh, pre-existing approaches. I think it's important to integrate knowledge from local contexts towards actually creating a universal framework that is more reflective of this global phenomenon. And this is especially important in addition to recognizing what I see as this double standard in studies of the far right. Thank you, Evian, so much for joining us today. Where can our listeners go if they want to hear more from you, if they want to read some of your work? Do you have anything that's just come out or is coming out? Sure. So if anyone's interested, you can see my latest article in Patterns of Prejudice, where I make the case that we need to understand right-wing extremism in India as part of the fields of far-right studies. And there I also touch upon some other cases in the global south to look at as well. Thank you so much, Evian, for joining us. This has been another episode of Right Rising. See you all next time.